the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show, this Tuesday edition. Thanks so much for joining us as always. And as always, danproftshow.com is where you can find podcasts. And uh, that website's getting updated with more enriched content, so stay tuned for that. As well as uh, at Dan Prof Show, follow us on social media, and at Dan Prof as well. Got a couple of Twitter accounts for your pleasure. I've got so much to tweet. And uh, today we start, uh, there's a lot to talk about, uh, President Trump's interview with uh, Laura Ingram. That was expansive, and so we'll weave that into the show, including with uh, Roger Kimball from The New Criterion. And also, of course, Joe Biden's speech on law and order of sorts, threatening speech on law and order. That's rather ironic in Pittsburgh yesterday. But I want to start with uh, Tucker Carlson's interview on his program last evening with uh, one of the defense attorneys for Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha. As we've uh, held our powder so that uh, investigations can be done, in fact, gathering can be accomplished in the Jacob Blake police involved shooting. Uh, so should be the case with Kyle Rittenhouse, but of course that would require a consistency from the left that they do not possess, that they openly reject, in fact. And nonetheless, Rittenhouse's attorney, John Pierce, uh, gave some insights into what the approach is going to be and the basis for the approach by defense attorneys in his case, which is, as he said, going to be a 100%, 100% self-defense claim. This is 100% self-defense, Tucker. Um, Kyle, um, he's a good kid. He's a lifeguard. Um, Kenosha was burning down. Um, actually, when he got done with work uh, that day, uh, he went to the high school with some friends to try to remove some graffiti. Um, after that, they got a call from a local business person who owns three businesses in downtown Kenosha. Uh, two of those three businesses had been burnt to the ground, and this business owner uh, simply wanted to uh, desperately protect what was left of his life's work, so he asked for help. Kyle and his friends decided uh, that nobody was doing anything to protect that community, and they decided that they would answer that call and help to protect uh, that business. Um, Kyle actually took a first aid kit downtown because he was concerned that there would be wounded protesters uh, downtown. Um, and, in fact, he took a firearm because Kenosha had become a war zone. Uh, right. and any sensible person would take that. Um, and him and his friends stayed on the premises and protected that property. Um, and then uh, he, some events started to unfold whereby he was trying to uh, treat medically wounded protesters. And ultimately, he got trapped out on the street, out in the open, because the riot police uh, had moved the line far enough down that they were between himself and that premises. It's interesting, particularly the last part of it. Well, a couple of parts of it. One is that he didn't cross state lines. He was in Kenosha. Two is that uh, he did allegedly get a call from a property owner or somebody that he went to this property with, got the call and asked for help. That needs to be fleshed out in greater detail. But OK, we directionally get a sense of what happened, according to his attorney. 
And then also uh, the explanation for why, per the New York Times reporting on this, where they synchronized as best as possible all the available video streams to try to present the timeline, the chronology of what happened and how it happened. There are gaps, though, and this is why judgment is probably judicious to withhold judgment here. But nonetheless, uh, you start to get at least a picture of what the case to be presented by Rittenhouse's side will be. Okay, so we have that. On the gun charge, the gun issue, a 17-year-old not allowed to open carry in Wisconsin, Class A misdemeanor. This is obviously a lesser-included charge when you're facing capital charges, as Rittenhouse is, illegitimate. So it's a secondary issue, but it is something that's been discussed. And so Tucker asked about that, as he should have. And here's John Pierce's answer. Wisconsin is an open carry state. That charge is incorrect as a matter of state law. Um, uh, As a 17-year-old, he was legally entitled to have that firearm in his possession. Moreover, uh, we are going to be arguing that the Second Amendment and Title 10, uh, Section 246 of the United States Code, renders that charge and any ordinance that that charge would be based on uh, blatantly unconstitutional under these circumstances. Maybe, but that's uh, an open question. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel talked to a couple of attorneys who specialize in gun-related cases. Under Wisconsin statutes, anyone under 18 who goes goes armed, excuse me, goes armed with any deadly weapon is guilty of a Class A misdemeanor. Rittenhouse, 17, not old enough to legally carry the rifle he had. However, I guess because of the relatively loose wording of the statute in question, according to one lawyer, John Monroe, he believes an exemption for rifles and shotguns intended to allow people age 16 and 17 to hunt could apply. Tom Grieve, also a defense lawyer in Milwaukee who specializes in gun case, agreed the exception might apply beyond hunting. That part of the law, he argued, though, was poorly drafted. So, uh, okay, it's possible. It's possible what John Pierce said on behalf of Rittenhouse is true. So I just wanted to flesh that out. Now let's go to the shootings themselves. The first shooting and how it went down. We talked about it when we went through the video when the New York Times posted it last week. So they're reporting on it. And what we said is fairly consistent in terms of my understanding of what the New York Times is reporting, fairly consistent with what John Pierce is saying here to Tucker about that first shooting involving the killing of that uh, convicted sex offender. There was a shot that was fired as Kyle was uh, retreating, actually, uh, from a mob that had become enraged that he was trying to put out uh, fires that the arsons had set uh, and because he was trying to protect property. Um, The mob became enraged. They began began screaming that uh, Kyle needed to be killed and they were going to kill him. They started relentlessly hunting him as prey as he ran down the street attempting to retreat. As he ran out of room to retreat, um, a shot uh, was fired from behind him. The New York Times has clearly uh, shown that. Uh, Shortly after that, the individual, Mr. Rosenbaum, uh, who who was leading the attack on him, uh, set upon him immediately, uh, began to assault him from behind, uh, attempted to uh, take his weapon, take his firearm. And Kyle, when he turned, he instantaneously had no choice but to defend himself uh, by firing because he was uh, in imminent uh, uh, danger of serious bodily harm or death. Okay, so that's uh, the description that's provided. The video backs that up to some extent, recognizing that there are gaps. It does seem to indicate that. And uh, so from there, after Rosenbaum is killed, Rittenhouse, excuse me, gets up and uh, then within about 90 seconds, according to the New York Times reporting, 
Uh, he's set upon by two other individuals that he shoots, killing one and wounding the other. Here's how Pierce describes it. Um, again, uh, the mob relentlessly and viciously uh, pursued him. Um, uh, and he was struck as he was running from behind uh, by one of the riders. He tripped and fell to the ground. Um, and then uh, one of the riders was right over him with a Glock. Uh, the other one was attempting, and both of them were attempting to disarm him to take his AR-15. He was successful in, in, in uh, being able to fight that off, and he had no choice but to then uh, immediately defend himself. He was in fear of serious bodily harm or death. He fired and uh, disarmed the uh, individual who had the Glock by hitting him in the arm. Uh, he shot and killed uh, the other person who was, who was attacking him. And you'll note the uh, lawyerly language. He was in a fear for a reasonable fear of an imminent slash deadly threat. So that's sort of the standard. That's what the language he's using. Something else that John Pierce said, though, is somewhat important to those suggesting, as one Illinois pastor did, that he is the same as Dylan Roof, the uh, mass murderer of those uh, black churchgoers in South Carolina. How ridiculous. Uh, John Pierce uh, commenting on the response from Rittenhouse. It was response and self-defense. It was only to preserve his own life. It was an indiscriminate shooting. In this chaos that was occurring in a city in America, in, in the middle of Wisconsin, uh, you know, Kyle, the only individuals that, that Kyle shot were the three individuals that were attacking him and putting right. him at risk of serious bodily harm or death. This is a 17-year-old kid. This is, this no. is amazing. And in addition, he made the point that uh, the individual with the Glock that uh, assaulted him with a deadly weapon, no, uh, the, the gentleman shot in the gentleman, the man shot in the arm, no charges filed against him. I believe he was confirmed, but regardless, unlawful use of a weapon for attacking Rittenhouse with a weapon. Why no charges there? That's a question that's pending. Donald Trump was asked about this at his uh, briefing yesterday. He had this to say both about Rittenhouse and importantly about who he wants policing the streets. It's not vigilantes. We're looking at all of it. Uh, that was an interesting situation. You saw the same tape as I saw. And uh, he was trying to get away from them, I guess it looks like. And he fell. And then they very violently attacked him. And it was something that we're looking at right now. And it's under investigation. But uh, I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been I, he probably would have been killed. But it's under it's under investigation. Do you think private citizens should be taking? I'd like to see law enforcement take care of everything. I think everything should be taken care of law enforcement. Yeah. And Trump repeated the same position in his interview with Laura Ingram, appropriately so. Uh, we'll uh, pick up this discussion about uh, law enforcement and uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, his the president's visit to Kenosha today with his son, Eric Trump, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Remember uh, Joe Biden, in response to questions about his mental acuity, in in including in his joint interview uh, the other weekend with uh, Kamala Harris, 
told uh, the uh, fungible ABC News uh, uh, readers that uh, you want to know about my mental acuity? Just watch me, man. And I'll tell you what, after yesterday's speech on Law and Order, I am willing to adhere to the standard that Joe Biden set for himself in terms of his fitness. Really feel safer under Donald Trump? COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's, when you think about it. Well, there, Joe Biden rests his case right there. Uh, something he said uh, lucidly. That is even more disturbing than that, uh, whatever that was, riff on COVID or something, safety COVID. Uh, Here's something that he said that can only be rationally understood as a threat. He's giving a speech ostensibly to denounce violence on the streets of America, and he issues a threat. His failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. Does anyone believe there'll be less violence in America if Donald Trump is reelected? So in other words, if uh, you vote to reelect Trump, you are going to guarantee more violence. How is that not political extortion? For uh, an answer to that question, we're pleased to be joined by Eric Trump. He is one of Donald Trump's sons, of course. He's the executive president of the Trump Organization as well. Eric, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, how are you? Well, let me answer that question just right off the top, if you don't mind. I mean, you had Kamala Harris, you know, two days ago in a clip. And I mean, I just can't believe it hasn't gone viral. And I'm certainly going to put it out later. But she said violence is not going to stop in the cities. And it's not going to stop before election days. And you can count on that. And you better believe it's not going to stop. And, you know, she's out there calling law enforcement, um, you know, the KKK and the Gestapo. She compared... Um, ICE agents to, um, you know, to the, you know, quote unquote Gestapo. And it's, it's, it's horrible. And um, you're right. I mean, Biden isn't all there. It, you know, he called Arizona a city last week. I mean, literally called the great state of Arizona. He called, he goes, it's wonderful to be, you know, in the great city of Arizona. And, you know, I mean, that was wonderful. And then, and then he said he's running for United States Senate. He's running for commander in chief. I mean, you better know the office here, but, but that's his problem. I mean, the guy's been in, you know, he's been in politics so long that he, he, he maybe he doesn't know the difference anymore. Maybe they all just blend together. And, well, you know, then he said that he was going to he was going to, you know, his tax credits were going to put a, 720 million women back to work in the United States. That's, I mean, a, lot, that's, a, lot of, three, that's a lot of women. There's only 340 <laughs> million people in this country, but uh, but, but, but his tax credit is going to be good for 720. Million. And then he said coronavirus killed 150 million people. I go. Holy crap, guys. I didn't realize half the half the country just died of coronavirus, apparently, according to Biden. And. Guys, no, the no, guy's no. not all there. To, 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 I mean, be, he's not. to be fair, in Arizona, a word hasn't gotten back to Joe Biden yet that Arizona has been admitted to the union. So <laughs> yeah. you have to give him a little latitude there. Um, yeah. uh, the but, walls in the basement are thick, guys. You know, it just it, it, it didn't somehow make it in there. Uh, so, Eric, uh, give us the main takeaway from President Trump's visit to Kenosha today. Here's what I can tell you. I was on a, I was on a tele you know tele rally last night with 25,000 people in Oregon, and and Oregon were polling uh, within the margin of error for the first time, right? And and this is like a seriously democratic state, and we're 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 within the margin of error. I mean, people, we're going to flip states that have never been flipped before. This isn't a Republican versus Democratic thing, guys, anymore. It really isn't. This is a insane versus sane, right? I mean. Look at Chicago, and 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 I mean, I spent five years building, you know, a great building there, and you know, so many people probably that are listening to this know it very well. I mean, I love the city of Chicago. I I love it. What these liberal, you know, policies have done 
they're destroying cities across this country. And what's the one common denominator? They're all run by lefty, radical, you know, crazies. I mean, look at my, you know, our home city of New York. You know, Bill de Blasio, maybe the worst mayor in United States history. And, you know, there's been some pretty bad ones, including ones that you, but, you know, Bill de Blasio cut a billion dollars out of the NYPD budget and got rid of all about a thousand undercover. um, He got rid of all undercover police officers, right? Within 90 days, crime went up 300%. The city's unrecognizable right now. I mean, we've seen this case study, guys, and it doesn't work. And Every time I go to Chicago, and I'm there a lot, every time I'm in Chicago, you know, I, I have your incredible PD, and they come up to me. We love you. We love your family. We love your father. Never stop fighting, please. I mean, I spoke about this a little bit in my convention speech, but never stop fighting. Continue to – I mean, you know, they can do the job. You know, there's a misconception that law enforcement in this country can't do the law enforcement can do the job, but when they're handcuffed and they're, you know, and and, and they're they're fearful for their 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 jobs and you know they they've got no one supporting them and it it's you know it it's 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 so sad it's so sad guys uh when uh, one of the things that uh, your your father the president uh, can do that attorney john Barr has spoken about regardless of whether he gets cooperation at the state and local level or not is to uh trail the money that's underwriting the lawlessness the organized anarchists uh, the organized uh, violent agitators uh, that's something it seems to me that he should be messaging on because you know you, you get to the core of who is really fomenting the violence. Sure, uh, Dan, uh, the DOJ is absolutely doing it, and um, and beyond that, I mean, I'll give you just a great little analogy talking about the city of Chicago when those when those riots were were were, were happening in Chicago, and you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people in the in the PD there, and um, you know, I was speaking to some of them, and, and they said, hey, make no mistake, you, like you don't believe that this is orchestrated. I mean, we are, you know, we know of people that have radios and people are telling them where to go and they're directing them around the city from, you know, from, from buildings nearby, telling them how to get around law enforcement. We can hear them. We're in the crowds. We can hear them. We see the radios. You know, this isn't, this isn't like a little ad hoc, you know, grassroots, a little pop-up thing. I mean, this is well orchestrated. Look in New York where they had school buses delivering pallets of, of bricks and you know, pallets, like a pallet of bricks is kind of expensive, right? It's probably 500 or 800 bucks for an entire – and you had a school bus with 40 pallets of the bricks that were being dropped off in pre-selected locations. You know, when people were orchestrating how to get these anarchists to these pallets of bricks so they could throw those bricks through windows of a building, it's like this takes a lot of money to do. This takes a lot of money and a lot of organization, and, and anybody who doesn't see that is, is, is completely naive to the world or just – ignorant to what's actually happening. And, and, and you better believe, I mean, uh, you know, last week, Bill Barr, they, you know, they arrested, you know, what was it, 1,500 different people that were part of these. And it's, um, you, you better believe that they're on it. I mean, they're, they're, they're on it. And before we let you go, which Trump family member gave the best speech at the RNC? You better say Laura. You better say Laura. Right, I'm, I'm going to say me just to get me in. I'm going <laughs> to get myself in trouble with my w- wife right now. So I'm going to say I gave the best speech now. I'm proud of my wife. She did a phenomenal job. And so did Don and Ivanka and, and clearly my father. And um, guys, we're, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're going to fight. You're never going to have a family in you know, political history that will fight harder. And, um, you know, we don't need to be doing this. We're one of the few that, that don't need to be doing this. But we love this country. And what's, what's happening out there is, you know, my father in 2016 was running against incompetence. I mean, because that's who they were today. He's just running against madness. I mean, really, it's... Um, this left-wing party is. This is not the party of um, of JFK. That much I can tell you. JFK would solidly be in um, 
in, in the Republican Party today. I mean, this party is unrecognizable. And, um, you know, $4 trillion in extra taxes, just, just the thing that Chicago and Illinois needs more taxes, right? I mean, Biden wants to raise people's taxes by $4 trillion. It's, it's, um, but I promise you, it's um, you know, 60-something days, and we're going to win this thing, and we're going to uh, we're going to make everybody in your great state that we love um, incredibly proud. He is Eric Trump, executive yeah. president of the Trump Organization. Eric, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Sticking on our uh, topic of law and order, as we discussed uh, before the break with Eric Trump and heading back to Kenosha, since the president spent his time there today as well, sometime there today as well. Again, over the weekend, this exchange between Anderson Cooper and Jacob Blake's father about some of the details we know about uh, Jacob Blake's interaction with Kenosha police on the day that he was shot and um, the uh, curious Brussels sprouts defense that Jacob Blake's father offered. As you know, the Kenosha Professional Police Association, which is a police union, they said that they late today said that Jacob was armed with a knife, didn't comply that he had fought with police and put an officer in a headlock. I know you aren't able to say much uh, about this, but were you aware of this? Do you, is that accurate? Some people say Brussels sprouts taste good. Um, I don't get the reference. I hate Brussels sprouts. You don't want to talk about this. Clearly, some people say Brussels sprouts taste good. He hates Brussels sprouts. But here's the point he's clearly making is that he disagrees with the characterization that was offered by those conducting the investigation into the shooting of Jacob Blake. Well, I mean, you you see the video, you see a tussle with police officers. Um, I I don't know that there's any dispute that there was a taser deployed. You see the officer chase him around the front of the car to the driver's seat. You see him pulling at his shirt as he's reaching in the car for a weapon, which apparently, according to the investigators, Jacob Blake said to police officers he had that he had a knife. So I'm not sure how well the Brussels sprouts defense holds up in this case. For more on it, we're pleased to be joined again by Brandon Tatum. Brandon Tatum is a former Tucson police officer and founder of TatumReport.com. Brandon Tatum, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sort of a bizarre non-response response from Jacob Blake's father, but what about the Brussels sprouts defense, just sort of denying what we see on the video, I guess? Yes, out of control. I mean, this is the reason why Jacob Blake is in the position that he's in, because he don't have a strong father. Now, I don't know the history of how that man raised Jacob Blake, but you can see through his response, his lack of accountability taken on behalf of his son, it tells a lot. I mean, the guy was wanted at the time of his interaction. He was perpetuating a, an additional crime, which is the crime of trespassing and also theft of, I guess it was his baby mama's keys, Pardon which is the right. reason why police responded. Right. Then he gets into a fight with the cops and all of the above. So, I mean, I don't know what people are expecting to happen, but this gentleman wasn't a nice guy and he didn't, he's not an innocent man. It shouldn't be a martyr. Yeah, well, that's a warrant for his arrest for criminal sexual assault. The details from the uh, alleged victim are pretty graphic, pretty disgusting. 
disgusting, actually, in terms of his alleged conduct. And the officers knew that going in. But the response said in some quarters has been because he was shot seven times in the back is, well, couldn't the officers have gained control of him without having to open fire, particularly in the back? Couldn't they have tackled him since they were chasing him around the front of the car, done something else short of using uh, lethal force? Being in law enforcement and, and people who are informed knows that it's a kind of force continuum. So you start with a verbal command, then if you have to use force and you've exhausted all of your resources, and once he walks around and gets in the car, there's a myriad of different things he can do. So they had to use force against him. He did not die. That's, a, that's the perfect use of force. You use force until you eliminate the person as a, a threat. And then you discontinue the use of force, which is exactly what these officers did. So you think this was a justifiable use of force based on what we know? A hundred percent based on the evidence that I saw in that video. Are there any questions that you have about what we we don't know yet that you'd like to know? I mean, one of the initial questions was, did the officers know that he had the outstanding warrant? The answer seems to be yes. Did they know? Was he reaching for a knife? The answer seems to be yes. He was reaching for a knife. Anything about this trouble you at all? Any questions that you would like answered? I would like to see some body-worn camera. And not because I think this somehow will make the police officer look bad. I think it's going to make Jacob Blake look bad and his family. You know, the police didn't just teleport to that scene and ended up in a fight with him. And they had to pull up. They had to engage with him verbally first. Yeah, I mean, the only thing, I, one, one of the other things, so to, with respect to the tussle that he got into it on the driver, on the passenger side of the car, where he was, there was a, allegedly an attempt to tase him, and that was unsuccessful, clearly. I mean, you had multiple officers there. Should those officers have been able to gain control of Jacob Blake there so, so he couldn't escalate the situation as he did? I think there's a shoulda, woulda, coulda scenario here. When policing, there's tactics that you use to, re- to detain somebody, and pile on is not a tactic. It's not going to be a, an effective measure. So if you have two officers that are physically, I guess, trying to apprehend him using tasers, you have other officers in case something else happens, like a family member tries to come in and, and engage in a fight and different things like that. So, I mean, there's a myriad of different things uh, we can look at after the incident, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they were thinking or what they were trying to accomplish, but they did a reasonable job. That guy should be held responsible for what he did as well, Jacob Blake. Uh, When we uh, come back with Brandon Tatum, I want to talk about a couple of other um, uh, police-involved shootings. Well, one other police-involved shooting, this in uh, uh, the south part of L.A. by L.A. County sheriffs uh, that uh, happened yesterday. In addition, um, uh, what happened in Portland, what happened in Kenosha, and a report that the FBI delivered to Chicago police out today that's very disturbing. More with Brandon Tatum, former Tucson police officer, founder of TatumReport.com, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Of course, there was uh, the report of uh, protesting going on in L.A. after a police-involved shooting involving L.A. County sheriffs and an individual who uh, refused to abide a command of an officer to get off of his bicycle and fled the scene, as the L.A. County sheriff's spokesman described. Ultimately, uh, the situation escalated to where police officers used lethal force and killed the individual. Immediately upon making contact with our suspect, our suspect was holding some items of clothing in his hands, punched one of the officers in the face, and then dropped the items in his hands. The deputies noticed that inside the clothing items that he dropped was a black semi-automatic handgun. 
at, at which time a deputy-involved shooting occurred. He was in possession of a firearm and did assault the deputy. Yeah, uh, Brandon Tatum, we're speaking with, former Tucson police officer, founder of TatumReport.com. I know this is sort of the initial reporting on it, and we don't have vi- much video, at least that I've seen, other than him fleeing. So the in- engagement with police officers I have not seen in, in, on video. Is there anything at first blush that concerns you about this case? No. Two plus two is four. If you're fighting police officers, resist an arrest, and you have a firearm, you're probably going to get shot. And I don't care. I'm, I'm sick of in this country is that we try to make excuses for criminals. You know, police officers are humans, man. They need to go home at the end of the day. They're going to have to make tough decisions in a split second. If you're dumb enough to run from the police, pull a, have a gun in your possession, and fight a police, punch one of them in the face, I mean, you're going to get what's coming to you. And what's coming to you is probably you're going to get use of force on you and potentially deadly force. I'm just tired of people making excuses. There's no excuse for running from the police and resisting arrest. None. I mean, as as a black American and a former police officer, I I mean, um, it's got to be it's frustrating to you, like it's frustrating to all of us. I assume you probably had experiences as a police officer where just comply. Even if you disagree with me, comply. That's why we have courts of law. Just comply with my commands. Everything's peaceful. And uh, we'll work it out in a court of law one way or the other. Either you're right or I'm right if you disagree. And that's how we work it out. Why, why is this so difficult in certain quarters? There's too much going on to be doing curbside justice. Take the arrest, go to court, fight it. That's our justice system. I don't understand why people are consistently resisting arrest from police officers expecting a different end. I think it's the weakest, most cowardice excuse in America, the African-American people, uh, some of them, claim that they're afraid of police. Why are we the most opt to resist arrest from police if we're so afraid of police? As if we haven't seen so many people getting shot by police. I, I don't get it. I, what do people want to accomplish by running from the police? You're not going to get away. You're going to get hurt. You're going to die unless they're trying to get a payout. I, I'm not sure why they're doing this, these it, things. It, it, it seems to me maybe, maybe part of the explanation is because these incidents like Jacob Blake George Floyd are so reported, are reported over and over again for so long. And the names invoked by politicians over and over again, it becomes this distortion where you think that there are more police involved shootings generally than there actually are more police involved shootings involving black men or unarmed black men than there actually are more cases of police misconduct than there actually are. Just you lose all sense of proportion because of the distortions of the coverage. A hundred percent. I mean, there's 40 million black people in this country. And in 2019, there were 14 shot and owned by police. That's not even a, a realistic percentage. You know what I mean? That's that's so low that people should understand that that's not it's not happening or occurring often. When I was a police officer. I was on a SWAT team and I never shot anybody. Our chief was on the police department for 32 years. He never shot anybody. I, I wish that people with operating facts and truth, and we can probably come to a conclusion. There are police officers that are probably doing things they're not supposed to do. There's training that needs to be had on the police department. I know I was a former police officer. So we can have those conversations, but when we distort the line and we make up lies and we defend criminals, there is no way we're going to ever get to an expected end and our country will at least be satisfied working together to accomplish something good. And if uh, the defund the police movement wasn't distracting and, and disquieting enough, this report out of Chicago, federal intelligence alert that was obtained by the ABC affiliate in Chicago that's gone out to Chicago area law enforcement with a warning. This is from FBI. Nearly three dozen street gangs have formed a pact to shoot on site any cop that has a weapon drawn and any subject in public. Uh, this is dated August 26th. Members of the gang factions have been actively searching for and filming police officers in performance of their official duties, the purpose of which is to catch them on film, 
an officer drawing his or her weapon on any subject and the subject shoot on sight of said officer in order to garner national media attention. And you know who runs that police department? A black man. So I just, I'm, I'm just sick of the narrative and this is troubling and people need to do something about it. You know, I don't understand how police officers are actively working to this day. Why would you patrol and risk your life for what? The community doesn't care. The people that you're serving are, will get out after you've saved lives in that community, after you've investigated crimes, you put, brought justice to people who are doing drive-bys and the such, and the first time you get into a, a situation they don't like, they turn on you. Why would you be a police officer? I would never go back to being a police officer in the conditions that we're facing in America today. I will never do it until people grow a backbone, until these mayors and governors grow a backbone and support the police officers, to police chiefs growing a backbone and supporting their police officers. It's no reason for cops to do this. You need to get another career. Let these people burn and, and, and destroy their own communities. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's really it's getting to a, just an, a more dangerous place than I think a lot of people think it could get to. I mean, uh, Superintendent Brown, you just referenced the Chicago police chief uh, mentioned in response to this alert, 51 officers were sh- have in Chicago police officers, just Chicago. 51 officers have been shot or shot at in one year, which quadruples any previous year in Chicago history. So he said, I think it's a, more than a suggestion that people are seeking to do harm to cops. And as you suggest, one of the reasons they think. Uh, one of the reasons they're probably doing so is a, a hatred of police. But but more than that, they think they can get away with this kind of violence, even against police officers. They're getting away with everything in America today. They can tear down statues. They don't have to use any kind. If, if a random person came and tore down a statue, they go to prison. You know, but if you mob and do it, the cops don't care. They don't enforce it. And I don't think it's them specifically. I think it's the leadership that are not letting them do their job. You can go and loot and Neiman Marcus and burn down buildings, and you're not going to face justice. I mean, you can rob somebody's house, point guns at them, and, and then they retaliate. They go to jail, you go free. I mean, it, we are so backwards in America at this point. And, I, and I, I, I'm glad that the president is actually saying something, but I want people to start doing something proactive because this is going to create a situation where citizens are going to come out and start being their own police department. Citizens are going to come out and start shooting people who are these BLM looters and, and criminals. And, and if you don't believe me, you just take a little bit of time and, and let this play out. It's going to become a violent situation that's going to be out of control quickly. So we need to take the stance, hard stance on law and order. Law enforcement need to do their doggone job so that citizens don't have to come out and do it. He is Brandon Tatum. He's a former Tucson police officer and founder of TatumReport.com. Brandon Tatum, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Next hour, we're going to get into uh, Joe Biden's political extortion speech masquerading as a treatise on law and order. But something else that he uh, lied about while he was in Pennsylvania Uh, appealing to uh, workers in the energy sector, uh, speaking at a warehouse where uh, jobs have been gained because of the fracking revolution. Joe Biden said that uh, he is not for banning fracking, not for banning fracking, no matter how many times Donald Trump lies about me, he said. Well, over at the Daily Wire, they provided a little bit of institutional knowledge on the topic. And we find uh, 
in the March 15th presidential Democrat uh, socialist presidential debate between Biden and Sanders, the last one hosted by CNN, moderated by Jake Tapper. Joe Biden says no more, no new fracking, Uh no new fracking after Comrade Bernie gives one of his Green New Deal diatribes. Uh, He goes on to say in that same debate, number one, no more subsidies for fossil fuel industry, no more drilling on federal lands, no more drilling, including offshore, no ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period, ends number one. You'll also uh, recall during the presidential primary when he was languishing, trying to pantomime the positions necessary to call the favor of the cultural Marxists in charge and just general Marxists in charge of the Democrat Socialist Party. He uh, had this advice for coal miners who would be laid off with uh, AOC's energy revolution. Anybody who can go down 300 to 3,000 feet in the mine, sure and hell can learn how to program as well. <coughs> Give me a break. Anybody who can throw coal into a f- furnace can learn how to program, for God's sake. Sure. You know, let's say, you know, we're going to take your jobs away because we've got this uh, utopian vision for the energy sector that is based on fantasy, you know, running a $20 trillion economy on Vermont maple syrup, windmills and switchgrass. But OK, you're losing your jobs anyway. We're shutting down the coal mines. Hey, you learned to code. Everybody's going to be a coder. That was his uh, advice and counsel for the coal miner at a Democrat presidential debate in late July, just a little over a year ago. CNN's Dana Bash asked Biden, just to clarify, would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? Biden answered, no. Would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking? No, he went on. We would we would work it out, make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either one of those, either any fossil fuel. In uh, the way only Biden can answer a question. No, he said. And now he's saying anybody who says he's for banning fracking is lying. I guess Joe Biden was lying to us back then or he's lying to us now, as the old saying goes. By the way, just a quick aside. Great documentary that came out last year that's actually produced by Michael Moore. Odd thing to say, I know. He's not the narrator as he has been in his previous documentaries, but another environmentalist is. And they look at the feasibility and integrity of some of these green energy proposals. It's called a planet of the humans. And I, something you'll probably never hear me say again about anything that has anything to do with Michael Moore, highly recommend it. Gives a lie from the left to so much of what's been proposed under the umbrella of Green New Deal. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're going to be talking about the Joe Biden's speech in Pittsburgh with Roger Kimball after the break in the next segment. But before we do, I wanted to tackle an aspect of it myself. We'll tackle some different features with Roger Kimball from the New Criterion. And uh, to help me do that, uh, Tucker Carlson, I run a bit hot and cold in Tucker Carl, uh, on Tucker Carlson, to be honest. But I'll tell you what, his commentary on Biden's speech yesterday was uh, one of his best. It was spot on as far as I'm concerned. Um, he uh, went right at Biden and uh, cut right to the chase of the speech that he gave in Pittsburgh 
in terms of understanding what the takeaway was. It, it was uh, thinly, if at all, veiled the message. Biden's 12 minutes today in Pennsylvania may have been the most thoroughly dishonest speech ever given by an American presidential candidate. Virtually every word of it was the opposite of the truth. It was literally beyond belief. Uh, and he's talking about, of course, the pivot to put the violence and the rioting and the looting on Trump. This is Trump's America. This is happening on Trump's watch. Trump is inciting the violence. The typical projection that we have gotten used to from the left. It's incredible what they're allowed to get away with. Uh, but Carlson did happen upon one line, and I caught it, too, that uh, struck him as honest. Uh, perhaps uh, a remarkable candor on, uh, on Joe Biden's part. His failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. Does anyone believe there'll be less violence in America if Donald Trump is reelected? And I will cede my time to Tucker Carlson. Oh, think there'll be less violence if he's reelected? Got it? It's a nice country you have here. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to it. That's not an observation, obviously. It's a threat. And it wasn't a mistake either. It's not a line he just blurted out. That line was in Biden's prepared remarks. His campaign tweeted it out later. They were proud of it. This is the official message of the Biden campaign. If you dare reelect Donald Trump, prepare for more rioting. You think Biden voters are dangerous now? Wait till you see them in Trump's second term. Now, we'd love to pretend that's another lie from the speech, but it's not a lie. It's likely true. And Biden was right about it. Pretty much everyone understands that it is true. But still, what a thing to say out loud. What country is this? Vote for me or my people will keep blocking traffic and setting fires and hurting people? Yes, that's exactly what they're saying. It is what they're saying. It's political extortion. Vote for vote for Joe Biden or else. That's the message. It's uh, the difference between recognizing the violence is likely to continue in some form or fashion because of the political decisions being made at the state and local level in so many jurisdictions. It's another thing to be cheerleading it. That's the difference. It's another thing to be weaponizing and to say, you know, you pay me the protection money or we bust up your place. Essentially, this is uh, Fat Tony style politics. Joe Biden, of all people. And of course, uh, old Scranton Joe, you know, hail fellow well met. Who, me, a radical socialist? Come on. I'm Scrappy Joe Biden from Scranton, PA, that you've come to know and love through my tales of riding the Acela back and forth from D.C. to Delaware. Regular old Joe, lunch pail Joe, radical socialist. Come on. That was his argument. Ask yourself, do I look like a radical socialist with a soft spot for rioters? Really? Mm hmm. And again, because I, I don't think I can do better saying something, showing my humility. Uh, Tucker Carlson with the response. Do I look like a radical socialist? Uh, no, you look like a glad handing shill for the credit card companies because <laughs> that's, that's exactly who you are. And that's why you're such an effective front man. But the people behind you are radical as hell. And we are not guessing about that. Biden's running mate, president in waiting Kamala Harris, openly solicited donations for rioters in Minneapolis. Quote, if you're able to, Harris tweeted in June, chip in now to the Minnesota Freedom Fund to help post bail for those protesting on the ground in Minnesota. Amazingly, that tweet is still up. 
At least 13 members of Joe Biden's staff sent money to the rioters in Minneapolis. So what did the Minnesota Freedom Fund do with the cash they got? Well, they freed a person who's being held for trying to kill the cops, murder them. They also bailed out an accused murderer and a twice convicted rapist, among many others. Kamala Harris has never apologized for doing this. She has never repudiated the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Biden, of course, didn't mention it in his speech today. But why would he mention it? He's not against it. He officially supports the idea behind it. The Biden campaign has called bail, quote, a modern day debtor's prison. Joe Biden is pledging, if elected, to end cash bail nationally in every state. Yeah, and we'll talk to Pedro Gonzalez from AmGreatness.com about that, about the under-incarceration in America of uh, repeat violent predators. Uh, but I digress. Uh, a, a key point there, uh, Joe Biden as the Manchurian candidate, right? they project uh, to Trump. Uh, here we go again. He's the Manchurian candidate. Putin's man in D.C. And who turns out to be the real Manchurian candidate? Imitating his... Uh, former political partner, Barack Obama, who turns out to be the front man for the radical left. Lunch pail Joe. You can't look at me and see radical socialists just like you couldn't look at at, uh, Barack Obama. He's got a nice smile. He uh, speaks with uh, proper syntax. I I think uh, he's uh, he's clean and uh, well-spoken was the Joe Biden description of Barack Obama. Uh, yeah, remember that? Uh, and so, you know, he, he, he just doesn't present. He's got a nice room temperature personality, and he uh, smiles all the time. So how can this guy be some sort of Marxist that's looking to transform America? No, that can't be. Another front man, mentoring candidate for the radical left. They're repeating the same game they played with Obama. Obama, obviously, a better frontman than Joe Biden, uh, but uh, it's the same game nonetheless. And behind the scenes, what do you have with Kamala Harris and what do you have with the radical left? Uh, and I, I really repeat myself, radical left has become redundant. There's no other strain other than radical, which is why what President Trump said to Laura Ingram at the outset of the interview about uh, the base of the Democrat Socialist Party I don't agree with. You would have riots like you've never seen. The the Democrats have lost control of the radical left. And if you look at Bernie and the, I call it the manifesto that was agreed to with Biden and his group, that's further left than Bernie ever was. They won't be able to control these people. These people have lost, they have lost control of these people. I mean, he's right about, uh, you know, further than even Comrade Bernie was going, the manifesto cobbled together to be uh, the Biden-Harris platform, effectively. He's right about that. But in terms of they've lost control, um, to to, to some extent, I'm sure they prefer that uh, some of these Jacobins weren't uh, putting Ted Wheeler's life in jeopardy in Portland and weren't uh, engaged in some of the violence that uh, is not politically helpful. However, go back to that statement that Tucker zeroed in on. If you uh, reelect Trump, there's going to be more violence. You know, vote Democrat, socialist or else. They are using those thugs, those barbarians. To do the dirty work of them themselves, the sentimental barbarians. 
green lighting, actual barbarism while practicing it, but in a button down way. So they've lost control, but they're providing a directional use for the thuggery and the violence, the rioting and the looting, aren't they? What uh, Trump really got right in that interview and is a great retort to uh, the Joe Biden statement about uh, essentially things will calm down just as long as you elect me. If you don't, then it's going to be messy. I have to be aggressive because they will take over. They will have won. If Biden gets in, they will have won. He's a weak person. He's controlled like a puppet. So it's not going to be calm things down. It's going to be they will have won. They will have taken over your cities. It's a revolution. You understand that it's a revolution and the people of this country will not stand for that. They're not going to stand for that. I hope he's right. I think he's right, President, but he's definitely right. I mean, in terms of the people standing for it, but he's definitely right that, you know, what does calm mean? Calm means you pay the extortion money. So is that the price you're willing to pay for everything to calm down, quote unquote, to be subjugated by? Marxists in charge of the apparatus of the state. That's a perfect response. Trump is exactly right about that. And Trump is exactly right about the political extortion game that Democrat socialists are playing. We'll uh, continue this conversation with uh, Roger Kimball from the New Criterion coming up next. You can't go wrong thinking nothing's wrong. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. President Trump sitting down with Laura Ingram, Fox News, and um, his assessment of why There has been such reticence on behalf of leftists, including the Biden-Harris ticket, to condemn violence. They stick up for the violence. They don't. The people that are getting hurt, they don't care about. It's a weird thing. It's like warped minds. And for the last 93 days, I've been offering to send. And as you know, they have to take the offer. They have to make they have to ask to have help. I've been standing and I've been saying, anytime you're ready, we'll put it out. What's motivating them, Mr. President? I think it's a sickness, actually. I think there also there's a fear. There's definitely also some need for institutional care for some of these uh, mayors and governors, no question. President Trump also with a message to his supporters. Uh, He doesn't want his supporters to replace the police officers in terms of the primary people keeping the peace. I want to leave it to law enforcement, but... My supporters are wonderful, hardworking, tremendous people, and they turn on their television set and they look at a Portland or they look at a Kenosha before I got involved and stopped it. Or they look at Chicago, where 78 people were shot last weekend and numerous people died. Uh, Or they look at New York, where violence is up by like, what, 150 percent. It's up by a number that nobody and people are leaving. They're looking at all of this. And they can't believe it. They can't believe it. Whether it's my supporter them, or not. But you don't want them showing no, up. No, I try don't. To- well, it's a peaceful protest. I mean, they were right. protesting. They weren't. You know, it's amazing. They want to protest. 
and they get criticized. The other people run through the streets, burn down storefronts, hurt people, beat people, and kill people, kick people in the face. That would have happened to Rand Paul, by the way, and his wife. Mm-hmm. Rand Paul and his wife leaving the RNC and others that were accosted as well, leaving the RNC last week. Here's a, an important point, and it's highlighted by Mark Hemingway in his uh, most excellent piece on Portland, Portland native himself, third generation, Oregonian. Mark Hemingway, uh, I remember this piece on a uh, former mayor and then governor that uh, Mark Hemingway wrote uh, back when the Weekly Standard was still around. It was on uh, Neil Goldschmidt, who was uh, perhaps the most influential mayor in Portland in the last 50 years, went on to become governor. The key here is that as um, people are looking around and they can't believe what's happening, it's a reminder that to borrow from the sun also rises and answer to the question, how did you go bankrupt gradually then suddenly? How did we get to this cultural disintegration gradually and now suddenly? It's been 50 years in a lot of these cities, including Chicago, 50 years in Portland, too. President Trump, in that interview with Ingram, talked about how long Portland has been trending towards anarchy. And Hemingway backs him up with some real world examples. In April 2017, four months after becoming mayor, Ted Wheeler canceled the city's annual Rose Parade after Antifa threatened violence because among the many civic groups marching the parade was the Multnomah County GOP. You have seen how much power we have downtown and the police cannot stop us from shutting down roads. So please consider your decision wisely. That was a message that Antifa said to Mayor Wheeler three years ago in 2018. Wheeler, who also uh, serves as the police commissioner, ordered officers to take a hands off approach to protesters who had set up camp in front of the city's ICE building trapped federal employees inside, vandalized their cars. Though the protest camp generated nearly 60 calls to police over 40 days, Wheeler publicly supported the vandals. This is all foreshadowing for what Portland has become the last 90 days. And you want to go back further? This is just incredible. Everything is political culture, political culture. I say it all the time and nobody listens, particularly in Chicago, but it doesn't make it any less true. You, You want to set up another program, another institution to borrow from von Mises, we need a new mentality, not merely a new institution in order to improve conditions. And that's the case in big cities around the country. And maybe in some it's coming. Chicago and Portland, I don't think so. Neil Goldschmidt, not only was he a influence peddler when he was governor, he admittedly had an affair with his children's babysitter over the course of three years, starting with when she was 14 his surprising exit from public life back in 1990 was part of a private settlement he negotiated with the victim. Goldschmidt had taken the girl to parties. His relationship was known to many of the state's power brokers, many of whom are still active in Oregon politics today. No one said anything for decades. In a May 2004 statement to the Oregonian, Mr. Goldschmidt acknowledged having had what he called, quote, an affair with a high school student for nearly a year. He retreated to his estate in the south of France after his political career was over in Portland and Oregon. His victim, Elizabeth Lynn Dunham, lived a life of tragedy and addiction and died in hospice in 2011 at the age of 49. But none of that matters as long as you're the beacon of progressivism, which is a synonym for barbarism. And that's where we are. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Roger Kimball, 
He's the editor of the new criterion and uh, also a frequent writer in other outlets, including uh, spectator USA, Roger and am greatness. Uh, Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yep. So um, I know uh, your recent column, uh, uh, you're imbued with a new sense of confidence after the RNC last week. Uh, and I want to get to that, but, <laughs> but, but just, I mean, because you're uh, an intellectual and you have a historical perspective here, which was, we're, we're trying to, to talk about it. You, we're just living in this moment of what's happened in the last 90 days rather than reflecting mm. on what's happened in the last 50 years. 60 years in these big cities, yes. and I wanted to get your comments. Well, you know, I you pointed out that what's happening in uh, places like Portland, it, it's not new. It's been going on for some time, and the, the, the pusillanimous leaders of, of these cities and states um, have done everything they can to invite the violence by their policy of appeasement on the one hand and th- their dissemination of every liberal and progressive cliche under the sun. But of course, it goes back even much further than 2017. I think you, you mentioned 2017. There was a, uh, an Antifa march, and, and uh, you know, they, they essentially threatened uh, the, the, the city leaders that if, if they didn't do what they wanted, there would be trouble. And of course, it goes back even further. It goes back to, to the late 60s and, and 70s when we had a very similar kind of uprising. You know, many of the same themes. There's a big racial theme. There was a, um, a socialism is good theme. There was a uh, uh, we have to tear down this horrible country theme. Uh, and, you know, there was there was riots in the streets or political assassinations. It was a it was a grim time. Um, a friend of mine. Uh, who, who had lived in, in uh, Seattle, said, you know, it used to be a very nice city. And then what, uh, all these people, uh, the progressives kind of moved in and uh, they, they essentially uh, turned it over to the anarchists. And that's, that's where we are now. We, we, we're in a situation where we, we are facing what James Burnham, the great political philosopher James Burnham called, uh, uh, cultural suicide. This is, you know, this is the this is the philosophy of a certain species of perverted liberalism that substitutes progressive nostrums and a sort of hypertrophied tolerance, which turns into its opposite, turns into intolerance. When we come back with the new Criterion's Roger Kimball, I want to get to his reaction to Victor Davis Hanson's commentary on. America's cultural suicide and whether it's avoidable. More with Roger Kimball. Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be double. So come on and let me know. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. We're back with the new Criterion's Roger Kimball talking about uh, unrest and violence in America's urban centers. And uh, you mentioned cultural suicide, uh, Roger, and I wanted to uh, 
fold in a piece by our friend, the historian Victor Davis Hanson in American Greatness, amgreatness.com. And he writes, mm. the story of all dark ages is that when civilizations finally prefer suicide, they do it easily. And the remnants flock yeah. to the countryside to preserve what they can, allowing the cities to go on with their ritual self-destruction. So it has yeah. begun to seem this endless summer. Is that is that what you see happening, is the abdication from the cities and allow them to uh, implode? Yes, so some cities. And, uh, you will note, by the way, that I think without exception, I can't think of any exception, they're all Democratic-run cities. So in other words, they're cities that have given up on such things as fiscal responsibility, on keeping order. And people talk about, the, the, you know, the phrase law and order is interesting. People say, oh, well, we you know, um, I remember William Sloan Coffin, the, the chaplain of Yale University back in the 70s, said that social justice is more important than law and order. It's a more important value. Not realizing, of course, that you don't get justice without law and order. That's what justice is. It's the prerequisite of order. And what we're seeing now is the, these little bonfires of anarchy which means you know no order. It's against order, and it, it's uh, it's a very odd moment. I believe in my heart, frankly, that we will overcome this, but it's touch and go at the moment. I mean, those that little video of Rand Paul and his wife struggling the, the couple of blocks to get back to their hotel is, is terrifying. It wasn't just Rand Paul, by the way. I mean, uh, my friend Devin Nunes faced faced something very similar, and what they've done to Alice Johnson the lady who was let out from jail um, by President Trump, who gave that marvelous speech at the RNC. She, too, has, has been accosted and warned by Van Jones not to, to tell people that, that she had been accosted. But what we see here with the difference, I think, is that even the people who we have entrusted and the institutions we've entrusted with perpetuating our civilization, they, too, have kind of gone over to the dark side. So Whereas in the late 60s and 70s, you could still rely on, you know, the business community, for example, to rally around American values. Now, I'm not sure you can do that anymore. Just the spectacle of Nike or Brooks Brothers or all these other corporations instantly capitulating and sending to their customers by email their little bulletins announcing their solidarity with Black Lives Matter an organization that is confessedly Marxist, that is confessedly dedicated to the uh, destruction of the nuclear family, explicitly espouses violence. It's deeply anti-civilizational. Right. And today with President Trump in Kenosha, it's an opportunity to extend the messaging and market positioning that was reestablished at the convention, uh, you know, in terms of supporting law enforcement, supporting the rule of law, supporting small business owners. Yeah, I mean, let's be truthful about these things. So, you know, in Minneapolis, uh, you know, people say that George Floyd was murdered. It's not at all clear that he was murdered. That you know, the autopsy report suggests that he had twice the legal, uh, the lethal uh, amount of fentanyl in his system. He had very serious um, uh, cardiac issues. You know, he he died from a drug overdose. You know, the, there's been leaked body cam footage from the police that shows tells a very different story from that. The footage that went viral and sparked the riots. Uh, again, in, 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 in Kenosha, this chap had, you know, had been abused, sexually abusing this woman for years. She called the police. He, you know, he, he, uh, he behaved very badly, it, and he had a knife. Um, 
So it's you know it, the story is very different from what we're we're being told. Well, and it, and and yes. not only not only that, and and that doesn't necessarily um, legitimize what Derek Chauvin did with George Floyd in Minneapolis. However, um, I think you're getting to an important point, which is you know you want to elevate George Floyd and uh, Jacob Blake to hero status in America. There's going to be a backlash against that because uh, I'm sorry what happened to them happened to them. To to some extent, uh, it was they they were contributing at minimum to what transpired by escalating the situation, not complying with police officers. But regardless, um, they're not heroes. At at best, they are victims. And that is not something that we 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 uh, elevate. That's not what we put on pedestals. Uh, It's what the left may want to, but it's not going to fly. Yeah, we got yeah. We he's got a, a litter of children by various women, not his wife. And you know, George Floyd was a career criminal, awful abusive of women. It, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. He is Roger Kimball. He's the editor of the New Criterion, and uh, check out his uh, uh, most recent column after the RNC. I'm confident Trump will be. Uh, will I'm confident Trump will triumph. That is, and I will tweet that out at Dan Prof as well. Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Following our conversation with Roger Kimball, let's stick on some of the conversation that President Trump had with Laura Ingram yesterday on Fox News. Ingram asking President Trump specifically about the deficit uh, he faces with female voters as uh, every Republican does, has more pronounced perhaps than some at present, but uh, maybe closing as he has closed on Biden, taking the lead in battleground states, according to some recent polling this week. But what is the message to the female voter, President Trump? Stupid people and violent people, very violent. But that's the kind of language, stupid that's people. Okay. That's a, a lot of women don't it's like also that. The, well, where are we? Oh, we're in the White House, I see. see. Okay, so... We need law and order in this country, and women see that with me. You're never going to have law and order with Biden. I think he's right there, although something else, the question, of course, I have to be aggressive, is, you know, you're, are you too aggressive personality-wise, uh, the Twitter feed and so on and so forth? I liked what he was doing a couple of weeks back, as I said on this show, pivoting to say, yeah, I, I get, I rub people the wrong way, but look at what I've done and recognize that sometimes you have to be perhaps a bit abrasive and a bit aggressive in order to... Uh, cut through all of the bull jive and bureaucracy and uh, competing messages to advance the flag that you said you would advance if you were elected. And so I'm sorry if I rub people the wrong way. I'm sorry if I offend people. But the other thing with respect to that generally is, Lauren, here's my message to everybody who doesn't like my personality. What is more important to you, my Twitter feed or your livelihood or your job opportunities or your children's education? You don't have to like me to vote for me. I am a vehicle for policy choices as a politician. That's all I am. I'm not a religious leader. I'm not operating a cult. I am just trying to serve the interests of the people who elected me, as well as all Americans, on the basis upon which I was elected, and keep my promises. Something like that, where you just acknowledge, as he has done previously, acknowledge it and then move past it. 
and frame the choice. Come on, this is an adult decision because the stakes are too high. You can't just make this about who has the more congenial personality. That's just crazy in the context, isn't it? There's another appeal that he made, too, as this conversation about appealing to mainly suburban women, mainly college-educated suburban women is what we're talking about here, mainly college-educated suburban white women. The hate has no home here. Sign waivers. Mm -hmm. Another issue he mentioned, which is relevant, and which was brought up actually by Patty McCloskey at when the McCloskeys gave their little convention talk last week. Um, the um, quote unquote affordable housing gambits afoot in leafy suburban communities around the country, decimating the communities in which it's gone from being afoot as an idea to an actuality. And I'll give you an example around Chicagoland that I know well. But here's uh, President Trump on that specific issue. They want low-income housing, and with that comes a lot of other problems, including crime. May not be nice not to say, but I'll say people are it. criminals, though. No, I'm not saying that at all, but it does. there is a level of violence that you don't see. So you have this beautiful community in the suburbs, including women, right? Women, they want security. I ended where they build low-income housing project right in the middle of your neighborhood. I ended it. If Biden gets in, he already said... It's going to go at a much higher rate than ever before. And you know who's going to be in charge of it? Cory Booker. That's going to be nice, okay? Yeah, I mean, this is a classic case of champagne socialists uh, taking rhetorical positions that that they don't want to see materialize in their neighborhood. And uh, let me give you an example of what happens when you do what the the left proposes with respect to these rent-seeking government housing projects, which are disastrous, just as the huge projects, the high rise projects in places like Chicago is disastrous, warehousing people, destroying their initiative, frankly, soul crushing. And they they were crime ridden, not because most poor people are criminals. It's just the opposite. Overwhelming majority of poor people are law abiding. But in uh, housing projects, as was the experience in Chicago, what do you have? You have the opportunity in Baltimore and elsewhere where you've seen this. It's not exclusive to Chicago. It's it's not a particular landmass. It's an approach to housing. You warehouse people that are wards of the state effectively, and you allow for the criminal element to insinuate itself and take over these projects and operate their businesses, mainly drugs, from the projects. I mean, um, The Wire, that great television show, sort of memorialized what happened in Baltimore's housing projects. Remember, this is why the mayor from uh, bygone era, Kurt Schmoke, was proposing drug legalization in Baltimore before it was all the rage. Uh, in the south suburbs in Chicago, two communities, you may have caught one over the weekend because the eponymous club of the community hosted the PGA tournament, the BMW championship. I'm talking about Olympia Fields. You go back to the late 60s, the Chicago Tribune, detailing, listing out the ranking of the most wealthy communities in Chicagoland. And you have some of the communities on the north shore of Chicago back then that were the wealthiest. They're still among the wealthiest. But in the top five were top six, I think it was actually, were two communities in the south suburbs, what we call the Southland in Chicago, Flossmoor and Olympia Fields. The richest top six, both of them, in the richest half a dozen communities in Chicagoland. Today, the entire Southland has been destroyed because when they took down the housing projects in Chicago and they provided uh, the Section 8 vouchers to for scattered site Section 8 housing in the suburbs to disperse the concentration of Section 8 voucher users from the south and west sides of the city into the south, disproportionately the south suburbs. You sent a bunch of people into those communities who had never had any experience in homeownership. And by the way, I'm talking about a lot of majority African-American communities. 
This isn't like, oh, uh, it's, you know, black coming to white communities. This is, you know, something that's racist. No, 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 no. In point of fact, in the south suburbs, in the south side of Chicago, Roseland, if you go back and look at those same archived Tribune articles, the Roseland community, which was a middle income, majority black community, opposed the relocation of black residents from the housing project to their community for the very same reason that anybody else would. They have no experience in home ownership. They're going to bring the problems of the projects to our safe, productive, middle-income community, and we don't want it, black versus black. And I don't mean versus in the sense of, but it's about behavior. It's about culture. It's not about race, as the left always wants to make it. Decimated. Chicago South Suburbs, a demilitarized zone, completely bottomed out. And the industrial base went with it, which just expedited the demise of formerly great bedroom communities all throughout the south suburban area of Chicago. That I mean, those are real world examples, and it's not limited to Chicago. It's just the one I know best. So uh, Trump, when he talks about that, just as the McCloskeys were talking about that with respect to St. Louis, he's hitting upon a real thing. And people in suburban communities around urban centers have seen it happen. And so it's, it's sort of a... a secondary issue. It's a little bit below the fold, but he's smart to hit upon it for the reasons I just explained. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Since we were talking about uh, Chicago as a good example of being a bad example, let's stick on the topic. Uh, Mayor Triple Threat, that would be Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, face of the city as she describes herself. Triple Threat is how she describes herself as well because she's black, female, and gay. That made her a triple threat. That's how she introduced herself as a candidate for mayor of Chicago. But, uh, you know, no identitarian obsession there. Okay. She was on vacation last week, uh, took the family to Maine. Interesting time to do it as... Chicago police officers are doing uh, riot training in advance of the weekend Black Lives Matter protests. Thankfully, since they shut down the business district, they were able to prevent another assault on people's property, both commercial and residential. But Lightfoot asked about uh, her disappearance during uh, these precarious times in Chicago. Good optics? Well, don't forget, this was the person who previously said that she had a right to protect her home when she closed off the block around it and had it guarded by Chicago police. She has that right to have Chicago police guard her home. She also has the right to take a vacation, even if the Chicago police don't. Do you think that's fair, considering the pandemic looting and the fact that you've ordered Chicago police to work 12 hours on, 12 hours off, with no days off or vacations? I'm here now, and I'm always in contact. So do I think that I needed a break? Of course, as everyone does. I've been encouraging my staff to take breaks, and I'm always on duty, 24-7, seven days a week. She's always in our hearts. This is, uh, I think, arguably, even passing de Blasio now, the most imperious mayor, the feudal queen, uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And something else that she said that's illustrative and uh, perhaps uh, something to prepare yourself for if you live in or around a big city, big city that uh, has a political class, big fans of lockdowns, destroying business and facing big budget deficits and not getting that big bailout from the federal government. 
at least not for budgeting purposes for the next fiscal year. Chicago facing a historic $1.2 billion budget deficit for the next fiscal year. And so guess what the tone is now from the woman who told the president to go make love to himself. Now it's all kumbaya time. The discussion has moved from how can we work together to how can we score points. We are losing our ability to see each other's perspective. Too many of us ascribe the worst motives to anyone who does not agree 100 percent with our beliefs. Isn't that fun? Change the tone of our discourse, work together with people we dis- with, with whom we disagree, so on and so forth. All that is is fattening up the Chicago serfs, S-E-R-F-S, the serfdom in the feudal kingdom of Lori Lightfoot and the political class here for the property tax increases and the other takings that will occur to keep this financial house of cards up for just a few months longer. That's what that is. So when your mayor, who has been engaged in some of the most despicable incendiary rhetoric, but whether directed at the president, directed at uh, their own residents, their own constituents, as has been the case with Lori Lightfoot, goes all, let's work together and put our differences aside, you know a hammer's coming. So I just thought I'd warn you, uh, since uh, we know how this plays out in Chicago. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Last week in Politico, five uh, district attorneys from around the country, black female Democrats, district attorneys, penned an op-ed for Politico. We're black, we're female, and we're prosecutors. We work as the gatekeepers in this flawed system, the criminal justice system, and we have some ideas on how to fix it. Eleven ideas. This, uh, by the way, includes um, Kim Fox, state's attorney for Cook County, Illinois, where I live. Diana Becton, district attorney for Contra Costa County in California. That's the East Bay. This is somebody who, uh, also backed by Soros, like Kim Fox in her election, suggested that um, officers consider whether a looter needed stolen goods before charging before charging somebody for stealing during a riot. So their their reviews on how to improve the flawed criminal justice system in America. Uh, do not prosecute peaceful protesters. Do not accept funding from police unions. Require review of all available evidence. When would you not do that? How is that a reform? Ban no knock warrants. Hold police accountable. Examined our offices office policies on declining low-level offenses, financially support and advocate for increases in funding for community-led and community-defined uh, responses, commit to using officers' power and platform to advance discussions of divestment from the criminal legal system and toward community-led and community-defined responses to harm, develop grant-based community reinvestment programs, solicit feedback from black and brown community groups we were elected to serve through public virtual forums, commit to budget transparency. 11 ideas. Did you hear anyone that has anything to do with removing predators, repeat predators, violent criminals from the streets of their communities pursuant to the law, consistent with the evidence so that they don't prey on law abiding residents repeatedly? Did you hear anything there? 11 suggestions. Nothing to do with enforcing 
the law to the fullest extent against repeat violent predators, including those who commit crimes with guns from a group of individuals who largely want to ban guns. It's just the most remarkable op-ed. And it's consistent with um, the culture of non-prosecution that permeates the jurisdictions in which these women serve as prosecutors. Let me give you an example. Electronic monitoring programs because of low bail in Chicago, in Cook County. It's up uh, about 50% year over year. 3,300 people now in Cook County's electronic monitoring program, up from 2,200 last year. And uh, the police chief in Cook County, uh, excuse me, in Chicago, by way of Dallas recently, uh, police superintendent David Brown has been complaining about the electronic monitoring program, uh, program, about the low bail, about uh, having repeat offenders and violent offenders being released back on the streets under electronic monitoring. 29 examples he provided to the Chicago Sun-Times in their review of this program. And it includes remarkable examples of the sort of of what the culture of non-prosecution breeds. Let me give you an example. An 18-year-old accused of jumping from a stolen GMC truck and robbing a female driver at gunpoint, taking her iPhone, AirPods, wallet, house keys. The police arrested him near a housing complex on the south side of Chicago. After he rammed their vehicle with a stolen truck, he was charged with armed robbery. Posted $500 in bail, placed on electronic monitoring. Uh, Two months after he was, the sheriff's office received an alert for an unauthorized leave by the individual on electronic monitoring. Three hours later, he shot an off-duty Chicago cop in the knee during an attempted robbery, and he was shot in return fire from the police officer. Now he's being held without bail after shootout with a police officer during an attempted robbery after he was could bond out for 500 bucks for an armed robbery in the first place. There are two dozen more examples, just the ones highlighted by Chicago police, which uh, leads us to our next guest. He is Pedro Gonzalez, assistant editor of American Greatness, amgreatness.com. And he writes, if anything, America has an under-incarceration problem. Well, I, I certainly feel him when it comes to uh, certain jurisdictions and the way they treat violent offenders like Cook County, Illinois, and frankly, There's jurisdictions of those other prosecutors who were signatories on that op-ed who apparently have the same philosophy. Pedro, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, So um, one of the things that uh, you looked at, I mean, you you provide individual cases as well, which are salient, including the uh, execution-style death of that five-year-old. Good grief. Uh, Colin Mm -hmm. uh, Cannon, excuse me, Cannon Hinnett. But um, but, but Mm -hmm. but when you pull back, um, you look at uh, some of the data that's been compiled by uh, our friend uh, Raphael Manguel over at the Manhattan Institute. And, uh, you know, what people perceive about those incarcerated doesn't turn out to be true. The idea that it's uh, mostly drug offenders and they're serving draconian sentences. That's one of the myths are, that are, that is out there. That's right. And I make the point that most of what people know or think they know about what is called mass incarceration it's really just half truths stretched into whole lies, like this idea that well, they'll, you'll hear a statistic like, well, about half of federal inmates uh, are incarcerated on drug charges. And so and what you are being told basically is that they're there for smoking pot, something harmless like that. But that's not the case at all. If you end up in federal prison on a drug charge, it's because you plead down from other more serious crimes. But that's totally omitted in this discussion about incarceration. Um, and the data that I used shows that out of 70,000 federal convictions in 2015, fewer than 200 were for simple drug possession. 
So this idea that there's just all these people there who are otherwise totally harmless to society and, and they should be out and about and they can be rehabilitated uh, relatively easily, uh, that's just not true. Uh, these people, especially in federal prison, are hardened criminals. It's been actually very alarming to see both parties, I mean, the Democrats are no surprise, but increasingly it seems like the Republican Party is kind of embracing this zeitgeist of reform, of criminal justice reform. Yeah, it turns out the specifics matter, too, in, in terms of an understanding of what's actually happened in the criminal justice system. And you point out that um, uh, convicted murderers, you think somebody's convicted of murder, they're going to go away for a long time if they're a young man till they're an old man. And that's not the case either. Right. Yeah. Uh, one in five state drug offenders spend less than six months in prison. Forty five percent serve less than one year. Twenty percent of convicted murderers and nearly 60 percent of those convicted for rape or sexual assault serve less than five years of their sentences. And there's a recent example of this. I think that is pretty relevant. Uh, Jacob Blake, the, the man shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after he fought with them, they tried to tase him. He wouldn't be subdued. And then um, it resulted in the shooting. He had an active warrant for a third degree uh, sex offense. Right. And he was at that house and police were called because uh, he, he violated a restraining order, I think, on his girlfriend. His girlfriend was the one that called the police. He wasn't supposed to be on the, on the premises. And so this is another example. You have a guy that has a really bad criminal history and has an active warrant for his arrest, third-degree sex offense, and he's just walking around harassing his girlfriend. So I think that that story in itself shows you that this, this idea that well, we put people behind bars and we keep them behind bars for too long, it's just not true. Well, the, one of the other data points from uh, Rafael Manguel, again, too, that's uh, just staggering as somebody who lives in Chicago, is uh, he found through his research that a person actually arrested for a shooting or murder in Chicago, and that's a relative rarity given the volume, uh, has been arrested uh, an average of 12 times previously. So, again, you have a right. small percentage of the population committing a preponderance, if not a majority of the crime and, but the problem is they're allowed to do so over and over again, even when it is undisputedly violent crime. Right. The data that he uses is that he found that in Chicago between 2015 and 2016, uh, 90 of those arrested for homicide had at least one prior arrest. Uh, approximately 50 percent of a prior arrest for a violent crime specifically and about 40 percent of a prior gun arrest. So it's just you have this revolving door uh, in prisons. And again, it's enabled by this philosophy that uh, rehabilitation is better than incapacitation. So instead of keeping these people behind bars so that they can't go out and, and recidivate, uh, instead we should uh, in, uh, kind of put them through these like social engineering programs that can change and modify their behavior through things like dog washing. That's actually a thing that uh, inmates can do as part of their rehabilitative programs is uh, groom dogs. Uh, and what is the recidivism rate in state prisons? On the state level, it's much higher. And over a nine-year period, uh, most inmates do, in fact, recidivate. Uh, a recent report by the Bureau of Justice uh, with a, a, a group of BJS statisticians found that 83% of state prisoners released in 2005 across 30 states were arrested at least once within nine years after getting out. More than three-quarters of released drug offenders were arrested for a non-drug crime within nine years. And again, to this point, uh, of 118 homicide suspects Baltimore police identified in 2017, 70% had been previously arrested on drug charges. So again, this, the, the drug charge thing, the people that are in for it, it, it really just proves that point. Uh, people that are in for drug charges are not harmless. 
He is Pedro Gonzalez, assistant editor of American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Pedro, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Switching from our discussion of law and order and removing those who prey on the productive from civilized society to... um, Matters for investors, the uh, policies that prey on productivity as well. This from uh, J.P. Morgan's Global Quantitative and Derivative Strategy Memo. Market and volatility commentary. What's next for markets? Investors should position for rising odds of Trump re-election on uh, the recovery. All the uh, debate about what shape it would take. The J.P. Morgan guys say, we believe this is now settled. We're seeing a K-shaped recovery. The pandemic and economic shutdowns caused a vertical drop that was exaggerated by market structure. Fed actions in March and April almost instantaneously reversed some of the losses. Then in early May, with conditions being met for gradual reopening, the political decision was to emphasize reimagining a new economy rather than reopening the old one. This uh, was the fork in the K-shaped recovery where the technology sector took off to rally 20 percent plus above previous all-time highs while cyclical market segments significantly lagged. It's created enormous inequality, not just in the performance of economic segments, but in society more broadly. Uh, There's no question about that. Big tech is the big winner from the pandemic response, in addition to big government at this juncture. And uh, they go on to uh, also point out, uh, per the uh, subhead that I mentioned, rising odds of Trump's reelection, how the uh, public opinion regarding violence on the streets has shifted in such a way as to buoy Trump's candidacy. And they also did some quantitative analysis on polling, suggesting that Trump voters are more likely to lie or be unresponsive to pollsters than our Biden voters by a factor of two, suggesting that Trump is probably in a stronger position in most of the polling than the results would otherwise indicate. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by Seth Levine. He is a professional investor and the creator of the Integrating Investor blog and podcast. Seth uses the Integrating Investor as a vehicle to explore more fundamental and macro-related investment ideas outside of his professional responsibilities. Thus, his opinions are strictly his own and do not reflect those of his employer. Nothing he says should be construed as investment advice or recommendations to purchase or sell any investment product or service. And uh, I think I'm going to, you know, bill him a quarter hour for that uh, legal disclaimer. Seth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks. Great to be back. Um, so, uh, are you uh, fully aligned in market outlook with the J.P. Morgan guys, or are they missing something? That's pretty interesting. I'd never heard the K-shaped recovery uh, letter before, and it certainly does seem to make sense uh, on the surface for me. You know, as an investor, I mean, these are just they're just fascinating times. Uh, on one hand, it's a lot of feels like a lot more of more of the same. It feels like we've been in this this kind of um this kind of market environment for a while. On the other hand, it's just there's so much going on. It's just very interesting. So, I mean, it seems like you know some things that we know and some things that are unknowable and there's just there's a lot of guesswork as there always is, but sort of unprecedented guesswork. It's one one thing we know is big tech, uh, you you lock everybody indoors and people have to do everything digitally and electronically. That's going to benefit uh, those who provide all their services digitally and electronically, the Amazons and the Apples and so on and so forth. 
That's pretty straightforward. Less straightforward is $7 trillion in manufactured money, uh, $4 trillion on the monetary side and you know, giving Jerome Powell all kinds of tools in his toolbox, as he likes to say, and then $3 trillion on the fiscal side in the form of stimulus checks and, and loans that can be converted into grants and so forth, and how uh, the American economy and the global economy really unwinds that sort of uh, freewheeling monetary policy, freewheeling spending uh, over some medium period and point in time. Yeah, and really what I find fascinating about this is I'll call it the market philosophy. Others may call it the market psychology. But you know, one of the things I try and do on my site is, is try and try and almost philosophize the investment markets. And I don't mean that in, in kind of a, a nonsensical way, but try and make a bigger sense of, of the investment markets. Because if you look at, you know, if you juxtapose the investment markets today versus, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, they're almost indistinguishable. And, you know, rather than just kind of look at it and accept that, I'm kind of interested in why. And my own view is I think there's just been a big philosophical shift in the, um, in, in just the culture at large. And I think those manifest in the investment, uh, in the investment markets, uh, very consistent with um, with what we're seeing today. Well, in in your piece in integratinginvestor.com, uh, yeah, you you go, um, you know, it sounds like you at least took maybe a 200-level philosophy course while you were focused on uh, matters financial and economic in college. The ideology of postmodernism, the intersection of postmodernism, which, of course, has beset college campuses for a couple of decades now, actually, a few decades, um, intersection there of that ideology into the market. It, explain... Uh, why that's relevant to um, uh, providing a, an outlook for investors. Sure. And, uh, you know, probably luckily for me, I was I did not um, study philosophy in college. I actually was an engineer. And maybe uh, that's oh, why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> maybe, why you can pay your bills. I've been able to kind yeah. of. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe, you know, maybe kind of, you know, dissect uh, what's going on here. Just maybe put, put some of those, uh, those college skills um, to work for once. Um, but, yeah, so. I really see this as a kind of cultural ph- phenomenon. Yeah, postmodernism has been around for a while. It's actually a term I only became uh, familiar with uh, fairly recently, you know, within the past call it five years or so, via um, a great book that I would recommend um, called Explaining Postmodernism by Stephen Hicks. And it really traces kind of the, um, the ideological roots of postmodernism. It's almost a history of, of, history of philosophy of postmodernism. And, of course, this is just Hicks's, um, Hicks's theories, but... To me, it makes a lot of sense. And what I see is just this this sort of how the philosophy has manifested, you know, that we see in the culture and, and particularly in the um, in the political left. Um, but I also see parts of it in the right as well. But um, I think it's manifested in the investment markets uh, in a number of ways um, and, and, and particularly with very heavy handed regulations, kind of this this. Um, this environment of just endless interventions and also this, this neurotic obsession with seeing the markets uh, continual rise. Right. But, but so, so then the, the, the concern of uh, sort of that postmodernism coming to the world of economics and all the obsession with inequality and, and forcing equality through government policy or the redistribution or the regulation, as you're suggesting, and, and what that would mean for, uh, uh, the markets, if you had a, a political power structure that embraced things like uh, a government takeover of health insurance in this country or the uh, move to eliminate fossil fuels from our energy sector. Right. Yeah. And, and actually what, what I see from it, uh, in my perspective, is this is a big backlash against it. 
And I think the backlash is, um, is healthy and it's, it's, it's justified in a sense. However, I, I also see it as just being very uh, emotionally charged and unstructured. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's bad, but, 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 but because of that, um, I do see it kind of manifesting as, as, as what I call, you know, market nihilism. There's this, there's this burn it down mentality in the investment markets where it seems like there's at least a faction of investors who just want to just, just want to out, um, just want to out, um, lash out against what they see as unjust. And, and in a lot of ways they are correct in my opinion, but, and just, just, they just want to burn it all down. And that to me is, is, is also a very dangerous, um, a very da- dangerous position to have. Oh yeah. I burn it all down would be seemingly, I, um, rather oxymoronic position, emphasis on moronic position to take for uh, somebody that's got um, yeah. uh, skin in the game. <laughs> I, I don't know how, yeah. how burn it all down it helps your position exactly, but oh, okay. He is Seth Levine, professional investor and the creator of the Integrating Investor blog and podcast. Seth, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Take care. Don't give up. You still have Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I was talking about uh, the suburbs uh, earlier in the show, a little bit last hour, in the context of President Trump's comments about uh, his message to female voters, particularly college educated women in suburban communities around the country. And um, uh, those suburban enclaves, which have in so many quarters become hate has no home here, Black Lives Matter signaling uh, enclaves of P-hat wearers, uh, they're not safe, even if they were Marxist long before it was all the rage, long before it was all current. Uh, Dateline Oak Park, Illinois the birthplace of Ernest Hemingway, Oak Park, Illinois, which went nuclear free zone (laughs) as a resolution to be a nuclear free zone in the 80s uh, in opposition to the Reagan buildup of our nuclear arsenal against the Soviets, you know, peace through strength. They oppose that in Oak Park. Well, um, I I mean, before I even get to it, let me just give you a real time example of how Looney Tunes this Oak Park Village Board is. Okay, this is who we're dealing with here before we get to what happened when the Oak Park mayor and village board took up a resolution to defund the Oak Park Police Department. This is uh, last year. This is a trustee named Susan Buchanan. And this is the histrionics associated with a discussion about the phrase systems of oppression in the village's diversity statement. Okay. A uh, inconsequential diversity statement that will be paid attention to by no one. And this is how it descended into madness, thanks to Susan Buchanan, one of the Birkenstock Marxists that lords over Oak Park, as has been the case for many generations. Yeah, I, I... I don't want to hear what you have to say. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, Come I'm on. serious. Susan. Jim, why do you have an opinion on this? Come on, Susan. Susan, this is... I won't say a word. That's why I like to... 
You shouldn't have an opinion on I that. Met this with, I met with constituents of color, and quite honestly, on some of the feedback was that some of this wording was ridiculous. No, you have been white from birth. Why are you arguing what is a system of oppression? You've never experienced one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So shut up. Uh, I don't want to hear from you. Dino, you are not oppressed, and I'm, people in Oak Park are, and we are trying to recognize that as a community. Mm -hmm. This mayor and this board is obviously not willing to face history. We have a chance to make history. It is time for this community mm -hmm. um, to face equity enough. And you stop it. You are a white male. I, you true. stop it. You are a white male. Your skin stop. is light enough. I'm stop not, it. I got to look. I think if we um, reduce these conversations to nobody cares what you have to say because you're a white male, I, I, I don't think we're doing this right. Yeah, I mean, that's a controversial statement in Oak Park that was offered by another trustee, Dan Maroney, who she kept excoriating to shut up because he's a white male. Just a little bit of color on Oak Park before we get into this. Oak Park Mayor Anan Abu Taleb, his home was visited by protesters during a virtual village board meeting where the mayor and trustees voted down Oak Park. You just got a flavor for it. Oak Park Village Board, the mayor and village board, voted down a resolution to defund the Oak Park Police Department. A hundred pro protesters gathered outside the mayor's home demanding the village board pass the resolution to hire fewer officers and reallocate, reallocate village resources towards social services or, you know, blah, 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 Birkenstocks and weed and so forth. The, the crowd grew more irritable as the meeting progressed. And then, of course, the resolution to defund the police did not pass. Five to two, by the way, uh, that um, the um, uh, chanting got louder and the protesters um, started banging on the windows and knocking on the doors of his home. They drew a pig and a mallet next to the words break the piggy bank, along with multiple instances and iterations of F the police. Uh, they had people sitting, he had people, I should say, sitting on his porch, going into his backyard. He had to tell his uh, wife and uh, the rest of his family not to come home because he was afraid that violence could break out. This is Oak Park. Marxist before it was cool, at least um, west of the Soviet Union. Uh, I'll tell you what, once you've lost Oak Park... You're in real trouble. Forget Minnesota being in play. The way that the left is cannibalizing their own, these Jacobins cannibalizing their own, Oak Park may be in play But by the time we get to November 3rd. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And now we turn our attention to some COVID matters. Uh, again, with respect to some of the uh, case data, the difference between um, 
somebody who is infected who is um, in their late teens uh, and early 20s uh, is um, the uh, case fatality rate is seven one hundredths of a percent. Uh, it is 29 percent for patients 85 or older, 400 times more lethal for patients 85 and older. And it just speaks again to the relative um, uh, unlikelihood that younger people that say should be in school, not just K through 12, but also in college, should be in school or could be back in the workforce. It speaks to how uh, risk-free that is, whereas with respect to older people and particularly comorbidities, how many times do we have to say this? It's a different story, and perhaps we should treat different populations differently uh, according to uh, what we know to be true from the case uh, from, from the cases that we have, from the data that we have, and um, also what is feasible, you know, giving people some autonomy in their own lives too. what is doable, the risks that people want to take on. You know, we saw, we, we've seen a little bit of resistance happening in Western Europe. We've had uh, big rallies against some of the lockdown measures in London and Berlin uh, uh, in the last few days. We also have uh, this piece by Gavin Mortimer and uh, Spectator.us. France uh, has partly seen sense on face masks, he writes, and he talks about how uh, some uh, of the French, uh, mainly men in their 40s and women in their early 20s, according to his observations, are eschewing the national mask mandate, which has now been extended to include uh, everybody. So nobody gets a pass. Uh, Friday mass, uh, as of Friday, last Friday, masks are mandatory in Paris and its outlying areas. No exceptions, not even for cyclists or runners. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see. I mean, this is the, the, the continuing challenge, right, is doing things that make sense rather than doing things that give the appearance of control or the appearance of safety. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by our friend, Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a medical doctor, contributor to the Daily Signal, former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Well, you are a positive apostate uh, with this uh, piece that I'm uh, looking at from the Daily Signal where uh, you argue that a national mask mandate isn't necessary to save lives. That is not what the political class is telling us. And I tend to trust my opinion about these things more than the political class. Probably a good uh, idea. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Why is it necessary? It's unnecessary because if you have a a national mask mandate, first off, I don't, I don't, the the authority for a national mask mandate doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, you'd have to go through the states. Each, each individual state would have to mandate it. But if you mandate it, then what the mandates that we've seen so far is basically if you're outside of your own house, then you need to be wearing a mask. But that doesn't make any sense because there's a lot of places in this country that is outside of your house that is not within any, any transmissible distance to another human being. So if you require a person to wear a mask in those periods, um, you know, we talk about in, in your own car or out on like a hiking trail, for instance, but even between your car to the grocery store, you're not going to be in close enough contact with another person not long enough, and not, you're just not in a situation where you're going to transmit the virus to another person in that in that uh, environment. You know, once you get inside, then you may be, maybe you're going to want to wear a mask. But where is this enforcement going to happen? Because any mandate that you have is going to require enforcement. Otherwise, a mandate has it's just for show. And if a mandate is just for show, then why have it? You know. So if you're going to enforce this thing, you're going to end up enforcing this mandate 
in, a, in very many places where it's not going to be helpful, and that has no public health, uh, no public health purpose. You know, again, here I, I hate to uh, venture into uh, territory where I'm not an expert, but I, I look at some of the scholarship from physicists, uh, from the people like the physicist from University of Ottawa, Dennis Rancourt, who looked at randomly controlled uh, studies into mask wearing as it pertains to influenza and the protectiveness. And you find you, a lot of studies that come back with no statistical significance in terms of the protective quality of so many of these masks. And then you get into other issues. Oh, well, doctors wear masks and, and surgeons wear masks and so forth. Right. They wear sterilized masks or you have other professionals who wear fitted masks. And, and most people are not doing anything of the sort. So most people still a lot of people still walking around just with a bandana bandana over their nose and mouth. I mean, all, all of this is seems to me really based on very thin science. So there's what we think is true, and fine, that's fine, medical experts, we think this is true, this sort of makes sense, okay. And then there's actual studies that have looked into it that find out there, well, there's no real evidence to support your intuition. All right, and, uh, and just to bring up the other side, there's also a lot of studies that, sh- that show correlations between large mass adoption and lower rates of transmission. Correlation, there's study, there's science. Co- co- correlation, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not causation. <laughs> Exactly. But what I'm saying is that there's science on both sides of this thing, and it just makes sense to us. Um, but this is another reason why mask mandates are a bad idea. It's because the, the science of backing it up isn't, isn't very strong. This is, this is, this is our in- intuition, mostly. And so if you're going to have a mandate with enforcement to make a mandate worth something, then it should be on something that's, that's very grounded in scientific fact. And, yes. and the truth is, you know, I'm, I've always been saying that there's a tremendous amount of potential for benefit but i don't say that there is tremendous benefit because we can't say there's not enough evidence to definitively say that and uh so speaking of the uh, the data point i brought up uh, at the outset of our discussion here with respect to again the case fatality rate among young people as compared to older people uh, and what's happening with school districts around the country particularly in urban centers but not limited I just want to do a status check. I know we've asked you this question before. Any reason that kids should not be in school, in-person learning? Um, let's see. If I dig down deep and try to find a st- uh, find a, a reason for kids not not supposed to be in school, the main thing is going to be if you have someone in the household who is at risk. That's that's the main reason I, I've seen that makes sense to me. Other than that, um, if there is an outbreak in a the school, then <clears throat> then you know you might want to quarantine the people who were in close contact with them, but you don't have to shut down the whole school for that. Uh, there's, there's really not a lot of reasons. No new reasons have come up. And in fact, as time has gone on, when we've seen that even with um, the resurgences in cases of COVID-19 in other countries, and these resurgences are not linked back to the schools. He is Dr. Kevin Pham. He is a medical doctor and a uh, uh, contributor to the Daily Signal Heritage Foundation product, a former uh, health a medical health scholar there as well. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. How can you address acedia and attain ataraxia? 
the question I know that's burning on everybody's mind, right? What the heck does any of that mean? A very interesting piece is one by uh, Jonathan Zaker, who is a academic at Australian Catholic University, another in the Wall Street Journal by Stephen Miller. Acedia is this um, Greek word meaning sort of listlessness. Um, this dates back to the 5th century. Cassian monks, a mind seized by emotion, horrified at where he is, disgusted with his room, does not allow him to stay in a cell or devote any effort to reading. He feels listlessness, a young hunger as though he were worn by a long journey or a prolonged fast. He glances about and sighs that no one is coming to see him constantly in and out of his cell. He looks at the sun as if it were too slow in setting. This is the emotion that Jonathan Zecker believes we're sort of all feeling in the whack-a-mole lockdown world of COVID-19. By contrast, ataraxia is the calmness that we seek. So it's these, it's, it's not anxiety. It's not depression. This word acedia, which uh, Zecker argues may need to come back into common parlance so as to provide a better encapsulation. We're feeling the idea to, to need something to have, as an avocation, something constructive to do, that it doesn't require too much deep thinking, Put, you know, give ourselves purpose where there are many things that we would like to do, would otherwise do, but we can't do because of COVID-19 lockdown policies. And, and that's where Stephen Miller comes in, ataraxia, this calmness, serenity that we seek, uh, peace of mind, and uh, he argues, you know, peace of mind, ways to do this yoga, mindfulness, prayer, deep breathing. Um, and then hobbies, playing chess, hitting a tennis ball, learning a musical instrument, playing golf in my uh, case, although that is sort of mentally taxing, at least the way I play. Uh, but anyway, I, um, I, it's just fascinating to try to bring back medieval terminology to address what we're feeling because of what? Medieval policies. And so I close the show today with a poem from my favorite poet, Robert Browning. Not necessarily my favorite poem of his. That would probably be Andre Del Sarto. But this, why I am a liberal, small l, classical sense. Why? Because all I happily can and do, and that I am now, all I hope to be. Whence come it save from fortune setting free, body and soul, the purpose to pursue. God trace for both if fetters not a few. Of prejudice convention fall from me, these shall I bid men, each in his degree, also God-guided, bear and gaily too, but little do or can the best of us, that little is achieved through liberty. Who then dares hold, emancipated thus, his fellow shall continue bound? Not I who live, love, labor freely, nor discuss a brother's right to freedom, that is why. Uh, so that's that's probably uh, too much deep thinking to achieve the ataraxia, but maybe it starts to get you out of your acedia. How's that? Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again for Wednesday's program tomorrow. This is The Dan Prof Show.